and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 24th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, The State of Retail and Service. Chefs are non-existent, says local restaurant owner. By Kathy A. Bolton. In the past nine months, Alexander Hall has opened two new restaurants in Clive. Franca Pizzeria and St. Kilda Bakery and Cafe. While Hall has been able to find staff to work in the dining area of the two Clive restaurants and his three other locations, finding and keeping chefs as well as other back-of-house staff has been difficult. The chefs are non-existent, Hall said during the business records Project 515 virtual discussion in early June on the retail and service industries. We could hire 10 chefs right now. We've had the problem where they'll come for the interview, they'll come for the trial. We offer them a job and they just don't turn up. We hired three people recently and they didn't turn up on opening day, he said. The struggle to find restaurant staff is not unique to Hall. Restaurants nationwide are having similar experiences. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data from April, 5.6% of people who worked in the accommodation and food services industry quit their jobs, the highest percentage of any sector listed. The quit rate for all private industry sectors in April was 3.2%. More specifically, between December 2021 and April 2022, Nearly 3.9 million people who had worked in accommodation and food services quit their jobs. The professional and business services sector had the second highest number of people quitting their jobs at 3.7 million. The job opening rate in the accommodation and food services sectors was 9.9% and 9.2% in March and April respectively according to the Labor Department. The rates were the highest among all the sectors monitored. Nobody's seen anything like this before. Jessica Dunker, president and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association said in a separate interview, it isn't even about wages anymore. Our wages are going up steadily. People don't want to come back and work in our industry, she said. Hall, who operates three St. Kilda's and two Franca pizzerias in the Des Moines area, said the people who work in the restaurant's kitchens are working long hours. He said he's also now working five days a week, filling in where needed in the five restaurants. What's happening now is other restaurateurs are starting to pay too much for labor because they're trying to get the labor, and this crunches labor costs. Hall said, we're all just trying to keep the employees we have very happy. Late last week, online hiring platform Indeed.com listed 38 full-time job openings for chefs in the area, with annual salaries ranging from $35,000 to $100,000. Several listings noted they were, quote, urgently hiring. 
Dunker said it's becoming increasingly common for restaurant managers to try to entice workers away from competitors with attractive benefits packages and higher pay. For a while, restaurants will be able to charge higher prices to cover the wage inflation and skyrocketing costs of food and supplies, she said. We're starting to approach that threshold of what people will pay for a pizza or sandwich, Dunker said. Right now, we're not seeing reduced bodies coming through the doors. Customers are ordering differently. They're drinking water. They aren't getting an appetizer. They're not tipping as generously. They're still coming out, but that can change. And then we have a whole lot of other issues, she said. In a related story, Project 515 panelists talk about Valley Junction and East Village. The Business Record hosted a virtual Project 515 panel discussion on the retail and service sector in early June. The conversation was moderated by senior staff writer Kathy Bolton. The following are excerpts of panelists' responses to questions they were asked. The panelists included Tyler Dingle, Senior Vice President of CBRE Hubble Commercial. Steve Freevert, Executive Director, Historic Valley Junction Foundation. Alexander Hall, Owner-Operator of St. Kilda's Restaurants. Aaron Hyde, Vice President and Associate Advisor of JLL Des Moines. And Cassie Sampson, Owner-Operator of the East Village Spa. Tyler and Aaron, you both attended the International Council of Shopping Centers Real Estate Convention in Las Vegas in May. Share a couple of your top takeaways from that convention. Aaron Hyde, the whole narrative of store closures is behind us. Now we're looking forward to, hey, we need to open brick and mortar stores because we need to have that customer engagement, that customer experience but also the service, the omni-channel systems these retailers have in place. The second thing we heard was about the supply chain. Retailers are trying to open up X number of stores, but they're saying, we don't know when we're going to get the stores open because we don't know how long it's going to take to get our HVAC units or all the products we need to open our stores. These two takeaways are people are opening stores and they just don't know when they can get them open. Tyler Dingle. I think the biggest issue we're having right now is what the cost of new construction has done to the market. In the past 10 years, we've seen a 44% increase in retail sales, which is huge. Retailers are doing well. At the same time, we saw a 4% increase in the amount of retail space available. The space available has really just not kept up. You can look around our market as well and see that we haven't had a lot of new retail developments of size. You have some smaller strip centers, but these larger retail developments have not happened. One of the biggest hurdles is getting these tenants to understand that if you want to be in a new store in a new market, the cost is going to be quite a bit more than what you're used to paying in a product that was 60% of the cost five years ago. 
Cassie, tell us a little bit about that and what the temperature or mood is of East Village business owners right now. Cassie Sampson. On a nice day, there's a lot of traffic on the sidewalks. Restaurants are busy. East Village Spa is at capacity just about every day of the week. We have a wait list of 8 to 10 every day of the week, plus a longer wait list for Saturdays. We are just about fully staffed, but we still have COVID talk taking out employees for 10 days at a time. That's a challenge, and it's a challenge in the East Village. Occasionally, you'll see a sign up that a business is closed early due to a lack of staffing. We're all noticing that some of our busier days are shifting. Our weekends are still busy, but I think with people having work from home options, they're able to sneak in a shopping trip on a Tuesday afternoon or come to the spa on a Thursday at three o'clock and then go back home and work. Steve, talk a little bit about the changes occurring in West Des Moines Valley Junction Shopping District. Steve Freebert. The past two years, we've seen a number of mixed-use buildings go up, with commercial on the ground level and residential on upper levels. First National Bank will be opening their new building at 5th and Elm soon. At 315 Fifth Street is a mixed-use building with 10 apartments that I believe are all rented and a wealth management firm is going in on the second floor. And we'll be getting our first bookstore in Valley Junction on the first floor. There's also going to be bar space. The City of West Des Moines Master Plan Steering Committee has done a lot of work and put forth design guidelines that are really going to guide the appearance of the buildings that are being put up, as well as preserving some of the historic character we have. That's really crucial. Panelists also talked about the East Village, an area between the state capitol complex and the Des Moines River that includes retail, service-oriented businesses, restaurants, and bars. Alexander Hall. East Village is by far my least performing store. That store before COVID, we switched from one brand to another brand, thinking pizza would be better. A St. Kilda's Cafe had been located at 111 East Grand Avenue. Now Franca Pizzeria is located in the space. We lost a lot of lunches. We used to have a very good lunch business there. We do good business at night and on the weekend, but the lunchtime business, there's not one car parked on that whole street, especially in the winter. We've struggled in the East Village. The East Village really needs to have a look at what its identity is. Valley Junction has done a really excellent job of getting everybody to work together as a team. The East Village doesn't seem to have quite as good of leadership as Valley Junction does. We would like to see more retail, but the problem is that the lease rates are so high that only restaurants can go in. Retail has trouble paying $30 a foot. So they put more restaurants in and it dilutes the customer base. The East Village needs more retail. We need hair salons. We need some different things to drive more traffic. Cassie Simpson. Valley Junction is lucky to have Steve Freebert. The East Village doesn't have an office. We don't have any employees. It's just volunteer-based organizations. That's a differentiating part of the village. I've been here since 2007. 
There were a lot of unique businesses in the East Village's early days, such as Ray Gun, Gong Fu Tea, and others, Samson said. They were the visionaries. They made the East Village cool. The unfortunate irony is when a neighborhood gets really desirable, it drives up the lease rates, and it makes it harder to attract more businesses like the ones who were visionary. Our next story is a letter from the president and CEO of Business Publications Corporation, Susanna DeBacca. Business Publications Corp. honored for commitment to quality and community. A commitment to community and quality has been the foundation of Business Publications Corp. since Connie Weimer launched the company nearly 40 years ago. That focus was recognized recently as our National Industry Associations honored our flagship products, the Business Record and DSM Magazine, for excellence. At BPC, our mission is to inform, inspire, elevate, and celebrate our communities through communication, connection, and recognition. This mission has served as our North Star never more so than through the disruption of the last few years. While many media brands have contracted or disappeared, we've expanded our team and our coverage in order to serve our communities with top quality news and information, as well as meaningful community conversations and events. Our peers across the nation have taken notice. At the recent Association of Area Business Publishers Annual Conference, the business record was recognized with four awards. Under the leadership of group publisher Chris Konetsky and editor Emily Barsky, our twice-daily flagship e-newsletter, The Business Record Daily, received a bronze medal for Best Overall Newsletter. The business record was also honored with a bronze medal for overall excellence. Additionally, staff writer Sarah Bogards received a gold medal for explanatory writing for her three-part series on the decline of Iowa's birthing units. Fearless, our weekly newsletter focusing on women's leadership and business issues, edited by Emily Kestel, received the gold for best specialty newsletter for the second year in a row. Earlier this year, DSM Magazine was honored for excellence by the City and Regional Magazine Association. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Christine Riccelli, DSM was recognized for general excellence. Inclusion Magazine, a specialty publication produced by DSM, was recognized for excellence in the Best Ancillary Publication category for the second year in a row. Our entire editorial, design, sales, and administrative staff contributes to our effort to produce our publications. Each deserves thanks and recognition for their part in these honors. It is meaningful to be recognized by peers, but we don't do our work to win awards. We do it to serve you, our readers, and the communities we cover. After all, we are a part of that same community. Indeed, if you go to a local event, there's a good chance you'll run into one or more BPC team members there. And we are dedicated to spotlighting the businesses, organizations, and people that make Greater Des Moines a better place for all of us. We understand that we are all in this together. 
and we promise to keep being there for you and with you, our readers, sponsors, and advertisers, and community members. We appreciate your support, and we invite you to continue on this journey with us as we maintain our focus on high-quality local journalism that makes a difference. Next, building a community-funded model of journalism. A look at three Iowa examples by Joe Gardiaz. Editor's note, this is the second installment of a two-part series looking at challenges to business models in the media industry and the possibility of more community-funded models. This piece looks at three examples in Iowa. Across the United States, new models of community-funded journalism have emerged over the past several years as news organizations have recognized that traditional business models that rely on advertising and subscription revenue are increasingly less relevant in a highly fragmented digital media market. Nonprofit news organizations in a number of cities are receiving sustainable philanthropic funding through community foundations and a range of other public and private foundations that are recognizing the value of maintaining the watchdog role on government and public institutions that independent news reporting provides. While the development of community news funds and philanthropically supported journalism is in nascent stages in Iowa relative to many other states, there are several models operating in Iowa. The business record spoke with leaders of three organizations, Iowa Watch, the Iowa Capital Dispatch, and the Western Iowa Journalism Fund for an update on what they have accomplished and their outlook. The Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism Iowa Watch. Iowa Watch, a nonprofit news outlet that provides free shared content to news organizations, was launched in 2010 with a vision of, quote, leading investigative journalism in Iowa through collaboration, training of future journalists, and efforts to increase the understanding of the role of journalism in a democracy, end quote. It was founded by Stephen Barry, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist and an associate professor, professor of journalism at the University of Iowa, and Robert Gushy, Jr., a journalist who helped launch the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2009. For the past decade, it was led by veteran Iowa journalist Lyle Mueller, who was succeeded in 2019 by Suzanne Bankey as its executive director and editor. Over the past 12 years, the nonprofit has trained and mentored student journalists in writing investigative articles for publication by local news organizations, with the aim that their work meets the high standards expected of professional journalists. In April, Iowa Watch announced plans to merge with a larger regional nonprofit news outlet, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting, also known as Investigate Midwest. Banky, who spent the majority of her 25-year journalism career in various editing positions with the Des Moines Register, 
was most recently editor of the Business Record. In her current role, she has been directly involved in fundraising for Iowa Watch and has kept the pulse of efforts nationally. I really feel like in the last four or five years, nonprofit news funding has grown nationally, Benke said. I think there have been a couple of efforts in Iowa that have also shown growth, such as the development of the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, she said. Iowa Watch, in particular, has usually had consistent funding from year to year, but from different sources at different times, Benke noted. There are some years where there might be more stipends or grants for Iowa Watch projects. Then sometimes there might be a business that offers a corporate donation over a certain number of years. Woodward Communications did that at one point. In the early years of Iowa Watch, it received some donations from newspapers, but you don't see that as much these days, and I understand why, she said. Benke said that because Iowa Watch was founded by a University of Iowa professor and was housed in the journalism school there, there was a widely held misperception that the university provided financial support, which it did not. She said, The second issue is that Iowa Watch has always given its work away for free, which is great. I love the public service mission of that. However, a lot of times our work gets picked up by the other news outlets, and they might forget the tagline we asked to include. So we lost recognition, and that kind of watered down the Iowa Watch brand. Asked if securing more sustainable funding was a primary reason for merging with Investigate Midwest, Benke said it was more about, quote, honestly looking at how we reach our mission's goals, end quote. She said, our goals of in-depth reporting on topics that may not get as much attention as the others and doing public service journalism in a bigger way, that was really the bigger consideration. Yes, I think it's fair to say that, sure, that opens us up to a wider audience. Joining together also exposes us to a greater number of potential donors. The acquisition removes the fundraising responsibilities from her plate. So, Benke said, quote, I'm actually excited to focus much more on the journalism side, end quote. Investigate Midwest, whose stated mission is to, quote, expose the dangerous and costly practices of influential agriculture corporations and institutions, end quote, practices ethical journalism and does not engage in undercover reporting or similar tactics, she said. They are driven a great deal by data. That is critical. I think that is a critical piece of what sets the reporting apart for the Investigate Midwest from other news outlets. So going undercover is not a piece of that. That's not data-driven, she said. There certainly always is the interest in talking to the people who are doing the work in agribusiness that are being affected by different things, but it's always driven by data or looking at the data for the trends and stories. They have principled, experienced people on their team, and we just joined them. I think this is a strong, seasoned and ethical group of journalists pursuing agricultural news coverage, Benke said. 
Among the benefits of being part of a larger regional organization will be increased reporting resources. In addition to having one or two of Investigate Midwest's interns possibly focused on Iowa, this summer the Iowa newsroom of Investigate Midwest will bring on a full-time Report for America reporter. Iowa Watch had applied for a Report for America position in recent years, but was unable to compete against larger organizations. But we were able to make a strong case by joining together to say that this would be a great addition, not just for the Iowa newsroom. There will be stories that are also important for Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota and other parts of the Midwest, Banky said. That position in particular is really looking at the agriculture and environment around the Mississippi River, which affects all those places, she said. Benke said she is hopeful that donor support will broaden as a combined operation. Some of the specific areas that Investigate Midwest has looked at in agriculture have also tied into the environment, labor shortages, and supply chain issues, she said. So that covers areas like manufacturing, economics, economic development. I think that those are topics that appeal to groups beyond farmers, beyond people who are tied to specific agribusinesses, and that those people may be interested in the work that the Iowa Watch newsroom of Investigative Midwest is pursuing. And we have seen from some of our partners on the East and West Coast that community foundations have become much more interested in supporting journalism in their communities. And that might be a nonprofit or it might be a for-profit news outlet. My hope is that we also see some growth in that area in Iowa overall, because we've been pretty lucky in a lot of ways in the state that even though the number of newsroom employees has certainly decreased, most communities in Iowa have some local news outlet, Benke said. The Iowa Capital Dispatch is part of a network of affiliated newsrooms under the umbrella of State's Newsroom a growing nonprofit network whose aim is to establish its own affiliate or partner with an existing nonprofit news organization in all 50 states. The Iowa Capital Dispatch publishes an online newsletter that is sent out free to its subscribers six days a week. News organizations across the state are free to pick up any of its content. State's newsroom supports each the each of its affiliates with a share of funding that covers each newsroom's largest expenses, journalist salaries, and office space. The organization takes a centralized approach toward distributing funding raised nationwide to its state affiliates and gives each affiliate newsroom broad latitude in discerning topics most important in each state. We have a really significant level of autonomy at the different affiliates, including what we want to cover, what areas we want to focus on, said Kathy Obradovich, who leads a four-person newsroom based in Des Moines. I think it's understood that we're going to cover state government and the state capital. That's part of our mission, she said. But there are different areas in our state where we see holes in coverage. One thing in Iowa, for example, we thought it was important to have somebody focusing on agriculture and the environment because we saw that over the years, 
the number of reporters who are dedicated to covering those really important topics for Iowa have dwindled way down, she said. Launched just over two years ago, the Iowa Capital Dispatch is now averaging about 60 articles per week that are picked up by other news outlets or linked to by other news organizations, not only newspapers, but Iowa Public Radio and a few other radio stations as well, Obradovich said. I just got an email from a small newspaper editor who just realized he could make use of this content and was asking me, how does this work? And it seems too good to be true. He said, I feel bad taking all this great stuff for free. I told him, you can donate, but whatever you donate is entirely up to you. But it's part of our mission to provide this content. So I think that even two years later, word is still getting out to some extent, she said. Chris Fitzsimon, co-founder and president of State's Newsroom, said recruiting high-quality journalists like Obradovich has been a key to the newsroom affiliate's success, combined with working to build the nonprofit support to sustain their operations. Anytime you're trying to scale something, there are challenges, and finding high-quality journalists like Kathy and some of our other editors took a while, Fitzsimon said. But overall, it's been relatively smooth. We're really lucky to have Kathy on board. I think she gives us a lot of credibility in Iowa, and we are proud of the team that she has assembled. State's newsroom's funding support has increased significantly over the past couple of years, he said, which has helped drive momentum for both staffing new affiliates and continuing to build centralized support operations for areas such as information technology and human resources. Sometimes, in some places, starting something new is harder than other places. But we've been really gratified by readers' support and local business support, he said. So we're confident that we'll continue to grow, not only expanding into new states, but also we're always looking for creative ways to expand in the states we already have. The overall goal is filling the gap in news coverage not replacing for-profit newspapers, Fitzsimon said. We're never going to replace the Des Moines Register, and we're not trying to, he said. I always encourage people to subscribe to their local newspaper. But local newspapers can't, with the current business model, cover things the way they used to. That's where we come in, to try to fill the gap. You'll notice the Register reprints a lot of our stories, and we're thrilled about that, just like we're thrilled when the Old Wine Daily Register reprints them, he said. Regarding collaboration with other nonprofit news organizations, some of State's Newsroom's affiliates have entered into formal partnerships, Obradovich said. We don't have any that are formal right now, but we are working on a project currently with Midwest Newsroom which is an NPR organization. Their partnership is actually with the Missouri Independent. They've got some reporters on a fellowship working out of that newsroom. Because the project involves several Midwest states, we're joining with them for reporting help and to publish their stories, she said. The Iowa Capital Dispatch does do some local fundraising for special projects, she said. 
For example, I'm working on hiring an intern, so that is something that we would pay for out of our local fundraising, she said. Public records requests, which can amount to thousands of dollars for extensive requests, as well as training, notebooks and pens, are covered locally as well. What we're doing at the moment here is just trying to get more regular freelance help to expand our content availability and give our reporters an opportunity to work on some longer-term stories, Obradovich said. I am just very proud of the way we've managed to grow this news outlet from pretty much zero to the number of followers that we have, she said. We don't rely too much on page views as a metric, but our page views have grown a lot. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 24, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Continuing with our story on the community-funded model of journalism, the Western Iowa Journalism Fund. Kyle Muson loves all the experimentation that's going on around the country. As the for-profit model is struggling, there are many more nonprofits that we could talk about all over the place, said Munson, the former Des Moines Register columnist and now corporate communications specialist. He co-founded the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation with Doug Burns, owner and publisher of the Carroll Times-Herald. Our approach from the beginning was meant to be a deep infrastructural solution to all of this. Munson said. So while there are a lot of organizations out there that are in some cases providing content that can then be shared freely and republished by existing newspapers and other news organizations, we from the start were trying to figure out the funding model, he said. The foundation looked at the Seattle Times ongoing project in which it developed investigative news funds to which community members could donate to support coverage of issues important to them, such as racial equality. So there were some precedents, Munson said, but we were unique in tackling this region, arguably one of the hardest regions to tackle, an entire rural region of the state where the news deserts can be extreme, he said. Among the allies of the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, has been Microsoft Corp. They have various projects that are intended to help local newsrooms and even in just giving their time and counsel for great Zoom sessions, Munson said. That's been an ongoing relationship, and we have relationships like that that we have been developing. I think that's recognition that what we are doing with the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation is important for these newsrooms. And we have some great local independent newsrooms. It's also a lab to figure out how to tackle this funding more broadly. I think the work we're doing here can apply nationally, Munson said. The funding support to the newspapers is really keeping their participating newsrooms in existence, Munson said. We are a nonprofit. We have a mission to inform and educate the rest of the residents of Western Iowa through independent local journalism. Everything that we award is tied to the reporting and the results of that reporting. So we're helping these for-profit newsrooms. 
It doesn't have to be a for-profit newsroom that receives funds, but that's the traditional model in these communities, he said. Burns is the third-generation owner of the Carroll Times-Herald. Because his news organization receives funding from the foundation, he is not a member of the foundation's board and does not participate in funding decisions. We started running into some rough waters, so we began looking at some alternative mechanisms for funding, he said in March during a panel discussion on the future of journalism. So with my friend Art Cullen and my very close friend Lorena Lopez, who is the editor and founder of La Prensa, we were able to secure funding and get nonprofit approval within the last year. And I think I can speak for them that if not for the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, our newspapers would be closed right now, he said. Both Lopez and Cullen concurred with Burns' assessment in subsequent interviews. Lorena Lopez established La Prensa in May 2006 and for nearly 15 years has been publishing the Spanish-language newspaper, which is distributed free on a bi-weekly basis. Currently, 6,000 copies of the newspaper are distributed. She began covering news of interest to the Latino communities in Carroll, Denison, and Storm Lake, initially with help from her son, Carlos, who was in college at the time. After the initial four years, La Prensa expanded to Perry and Des Moines, and later added Cherokee and Spencer to its coverage area. She has been a one-person news operation for a number of years, but that is changing with the help of the foundation. Lopez, who emigrated from Nicaragua, said free distribution of news is a model that she grew up with in her home country. However, the idea of raising money to support her news operation was foreign to her. Burns persuaded her to join him in putting the Facebook grants their papers had received into starting the foundation. So she risked the $5,000 grant she had received to help seed it. The foundation's support, approximately $18,000 to date, has enabled her to supplement printing and other costs, as well as to fill her gas tank to travel from one city to another to report on local stories. Through the foundation, a local family is funding two journalism students from Iowa State University to work as interns at the paper. She is looking forward to a grant from the foundation to fund a full-time reporter. That has been a blessing because advertising revenue continues to be bad, she said. Lopez sees a clear mission in providing, quote, good, objective information about what is going on in our local communities and our government, end quote. I think God gave me a blessing to establish La Prensa for a reason, Lopez said. I cannot handle injustice in the minority communities, my blood boils when people are misinformed. Art Cullen, co-owner and editor of the Storm Lake Times Pilot, said the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation not only saved the newspaper from closing, but also provided the funding boost needed to enable him and his brother to purchase the competing newspaper, the Storm Lake Pilot Tribune, earlier this year. 
So we are able to realize our quest to have to have a hometown locally owned paper for Storm Lake, he said. Now that we've merged the newspapers, there's a path forward. We also bought the Cherokee Chronicle Times. We'd like to think local ownership is going to benefit these newspapers in the long run. Through the foundation, a computer guy from California in November contributed $60,000 to the newspaper, Cullen said. He just heard about us on the radio and said, I want to help these guys. That really saved us. Otherwise, we would have had to borrow money. And I don't know if we could have borrowed money or if it even would have made sense, he said. The Storm Lake Times documentary, Storm Lake, produced by Independent Lens and broadcast on PBS, resulted in a, quote, flood of contributions, end quote, from across the country, Cullen said. Frankly, I think a lot of the larger contributions are coming from expatriated Iowans in other states, he said. Cullen said the biggest contribution from the local community has been through increasing subscriptions, both for the print and digital publications. The newspaper now has about 800 digital subscriptions, a revenue category it didn't have at all three years ago. Paid circulation is actually increasing, he said. If you have the money, you can provide the content. The continuation of local ownership of newspapers is an important topic the Foundation is working to address, Burns said. We didn't necessarily envision how much something like succession planning for some of these local newsrooms would be on our agenda so early. But that's something that's bubbled up, Burns said. You see this crisis, and you have whole generations of publishers and editors stepping out of the business for various reasons. Well, who is the new generation that's inclined to take up that work and sustain a local newsroom? Munson agreed that Report for America is doing well in helping local newspapers augment their reporting but noted that the tougher issue is developing or recruiting the next local editors and publishers to continue those local newsrooms. Because of the financial foundation of what we are, because we're not actively reporting and we're not producing journalism ourselves, we don't have to put up any sort of wall that we're not going to accept corporate funding. We don't face some of those same issues that Report for America or State's Newsroom would face. We're a hub for funding, he said. The PBS documentary about the Storm Lake Times provided a big publicity boost for the foundation last year, Munson said. I think this year we're really going to start marching forward. We have a lot of grassroots support, he said. We're really connecting with major funding and infrastructure. And so we're talking about those big blocks of funding you need to have a full-fledged organization, full-time staff, and programming. And so we're getting all the details filled in and just fleshing out the organization. I think this year we're really going to come into our own, he said.
Burns, who was joined on the journalism panel in Des Moines by several other Iowa journalists, gave a shout-out to his reporting intern in the audience, Tom Foley, whose paid internship the foundation has funded. He's doing a terrific job, Burns said. I don't know if I'll make it across the bridge to the nonprofit model that supports community journalism, Burns said, but those models are there. I think there will be a renaissance, and there will be a new era of journalism led by people like Kathy Obradovich, who have significant and sustainable nonprofit funding. And there are a lot of younger journalists out there who are just doing exceedingly good work. Now turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Dick Johnson. Former state auditor Dick Johnson was one of those rare politicians with a storehouse of seemingly unlimited knowledge and a sense of public purpose larger than his ego. He died recently at 87, following a decade-long battle with Alzheimer's. I doubt Iowa will see a public man of his caliber again. Johnson was auditor from 1979 until 2003. As a young reporter, I covered his transformation of the auditor's office into one of the premier agencies of state government. Governor Robert Ray named Johnson, a 43-year-old accountant, to replace state auditor Lloyd Smith, after Smith died unexpectedly. Johnson was the first CPA, Certified Public Accountant, to serve as state auditor, and his appointment proved to be one of the best decisions of Ray's 14 years as governor. Johnson took a pay cut to take the job, which at the time paid $30,000. He had been making $37,000 a year as Director of Administration for the Iowa Department of Transportation. It was the second time he took a pay cut for public service. In 1968, Johnson had left a promising career at Pete Marwick Mitchell & Company to work for the DOT at lower pay. Johnson lived most of his life in Sheldahl, a community of about 300 people at the tri-county corners of Polk, Story, and Boone counties, where he was city clerk and later mayor from 1959 to 1975. He grew up in Spencer, Nebraska, a town of 600 people near the South Dakota border, and wound up at Drake University where he earned an accounting degree. As I once wrote, Johnson was one of those people who successfully pursued the career a high school aptitude test mapped out for him. What he hadn't expected was a political career. But once he became auditor, he brought the whole family into the business. During his first campaign, wife Marjorie and their four children, Deanne, Joanne, Leanne, and David, joined him at political meetings, sometimes singing patriotic songs as Dad, who could not carry a tune, ran the sound system. Somehow, Johnson also found time to be active in his church and the Iowa National Guard. He told me in 1979 that because he always followed his conscience, quote, I can't say I've ever had a decision that's been difficult, 
end quote. He continued to follow that ethic as auditor, even when it brought him in conflict with high-powered people. One of Johnson's early state audits was critical of Joseph May, head of the Iowa National Guard, and Johnson's part-time boss for May's private use of Guard aircraft. Another audit forced DOT Chief Victor Pricer, Johnson's recent boss, to repay $1,600 in travel expenses. At the time, Johnson told me he really liked Pricer and said most incidents of unjustified expenses can usually be traced to a situation where someone felt cheated by the system. Pricer, he added, was miffed because the state comptroller had refused to pay for what the DOT chief believed were legitimate dinner expenses with his governing board. Johnson, along with State Treasurer Michael Fitzgerald, is credited with forcing Iowa to adopt GAP, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, which make it possible for outsiders to assess the quality of state finances. They did that over the objections of many politicians, including Governor Terry Branstad. Johnson had a long-running battle with Branstad over how to manage and report state finances that began when Johnson criticized the governor's use of public aircraft to attend political meetings. Much of the dispute focused on Branstad's creation and management of a statewide fiber optic network, which the governor initially said would cost about $50 million, but wound up costing $500 million, and which never lived up to expectations as a tool for advancing education and cultural programs. Writing about that dispute in 1994, Register political columnist James Flansburg created a sentence that serves well as a summation of the auditor's life. Quote, Without doubt, Johnson's credibility and his reputation for probity and honesty are head and shoulders above those of every ranking politician in the state. From the Business Records Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Old Fire Station Comes Full Circle Under New Ownership by Michael Crum. The future of the former Central Fire Station No. 1 will be a nod to its past, one of its new owners said. Malang Properties LLC and Dingle Properties LLC paid $2.3 million for the property at 900 Mulberry Street in Des Moines. The nonprofit Des Moines Social Club purchased the building in 2012 from the city, transforming it into an arts and cultural center. The club made nearly $7 million in improvements to the property, exceeding the group's fundraising total, putting constant pressure on its operating funds, city documents, state. A group was put in place in 2019 to reimagine the property, and in 2021 the decision was made to sell the campus, with the proceeds being used to create an endowment at the Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines to support arts and culture. A buyer from Kansas City, Missouri offered to purchase the building, but later backed out of the deal. 
Todd Malang, owner of Malang Properties, and Tyler Dingler, Dingle, owner of Dingle Properties, now plan to revitalize the old fire station and provide space for community events, office space, and a coffee shop. One of the key players will be Des Moines Firefighters Union Local 4, Malang said. He said a friend of his, who is a firefighter, reached out because the union had been looking for a new home. It fell together very nicely where we have a deal struck with the union, and they've been in the property since the day after we closed, two weeks ago, doing some demo work. And they're going to put some efforts into making this a nice event space, using the main level for events and the patio, and then they'll use the lower level as their union hall, Malang said. Events could range from corporate events and retreats to weddings and retirement parties, he said. Malang said it brings the building, quote, full circle, considering this was firehouse number one, and now we have our firefighters back in the improved property, so it's not only a home for them and their union members, but it's a way for them to pay for it through renting the property out for different events. The restaurant Malo, which Malang is a partner in with Paul Rottenberg and George Formaro, will remain in the north part of the building. There are a couple of potential tenants looking at the remainder of space on the second level for offices, Malang said. He said he's also excited about the two possible tenants coming in on the second floor. One of them is super excited about the historical significance of the property, and they're going to come in and do some pretty neat improvements to the upper level to sort of give it its best opportunity to shine as a historical property, Malang said. He said it was too early to identify who those tenants might be. The final spot is the space on the first level that used to house a gallery and a comic book store. Malang said he will look to bring in a coffee and pastry shop that would complement Malo. Malang said it's important to redevelop the property and provide some continuity to the neighborhood. He anticipates the improvement work being done by later this year. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, June 24, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <music>